0: Leslie Cannold is an academic, ethicist and freelance writer. Her first novel is The Book of Rachel, a reimagining of the story of Jesus told through the eyes of his younger sister. A longtime activist, Leslie is committed to women's rights and equality, two themes that feature strongly in her first novel. She is also the author of two non-fiction books, What No Baby and The Abortion Myth. Considered one of Australia's top 20 intellectuals, she is a well respected columnist and commentator, writing regularly for the Sydney Sun Herald, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Crikey, The Herald Sun, ABC, The Drum, Unleashed, and many more. This year she was named Australian Humanist of the Year by the International Humanist and Ethical Union. So thanks for joining us today, Leslie.
1: Terrific to to talk to you.
0: Now, we're really excited about your your book, The Book of Rachel, which um, is a reimagining of the story of Jesus told through the eyes of his younger sister. Tell us, how in the world did you come to this idea and decide to write it?
1: Well, in some ways it's a reimagining of the story of Jesus, but I suppose you know, I don't conceive of it that way, although I can understand how some people think that that's what it's about. Um for me it was really more about trying to imagine what would have happened if Jesus had a, had a sister. Mm-hmm and what life would have been like for her. And of course, as she grew older and, and the novel began to develop, her life began to intersect with the life that he was having, which was such an interesting and, and well-known story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, as you say, helps to kind of, you know, it threw a different light on, on what that story was about. But I was mostly concerned with her. And the idea came to me, and, and I guess that's why I was mostly concerned with her, is because the idea came to me by, through having... um. Uh, watched a documentary that the BBC uh, had put on and that was rebroadcast here in Australia, where they were going through quite a lot of minutiae about Jesus the man. You know, Did he really exist? What proof do we have for that? Could he really have been crucified? It was very, very, very detailed and they let us know, I think around the third episode, that he all had four brothers. And they were able to say what their names were and they were able to pretty much say what had kind of happened to them and where they'd been buried. And that was all because Somebody had recorded that information when Jesus was alive because he was already somebody who had a whiff of notoriety around him. Yeah. But then they said, he also may have had sisters, but we don't know their names. And then it all just moved on. And I, for some reason, it just struck me like a slap in the face. You know, what, gosh, what kind of a world would it have been where somebody who already kind of seemed like they might be a somebody Um, would have the names of their brothers sort of painstakingly reported, but not the names of their sisters. And initially Mm. I thought, oh, well, never mind, you know, I'll just go off and find them and I'll recapture them for history and I'll write the story about them because I was a nonfiction writer. So I thought I'd do that as a nonfiction writer. But I quickly realized that there is nothing to find I mean, the information simply has not been recorded, these women are lost, they're lost forever, Mm. and the only way to bring them back to life is through fiction.
0: Right. And did you have a background or uh, interest previously in religion, or, or what was your background in that area?
1: Sure. Well I, I grew up in a secular, um, Jewish family. Mm-hmm. So i, I I'm identify as being somebody who's Jewish, but I suppose in a cultural way. So, you know, mm-hmm. the way that somebody who's Italian might identify with being, you know, having an Italian heritage. Mm-hmm. I, I see, you know, being Jewish as sort of the way that you understand my story and how it is my parents came to the United States and why my grandparents were fleeing Europe and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not a I'm not a person of faith. I'm I'm probably an agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know I guess that was one of the eye openers for me of this documentary, which I tried to draw into the book itself, which was that I always have thought, and not surprisingly, really, when you're not, you know, engaged with religion, full stop, little less the religion that's not yours, mm. that Jesus was a Christian person, and so I wasn't Christian, and therefore he really didn't have very much to do with me. Mm. But the thing you immediately come to understand when you start to look at who he was as a man is that these were Jews, and mm. they were Jews, in fact, for hundreds of years after. Um, he died. It really, you know, the the notion that they were not Jews and that the people who were following him were separate, a group called Christians, didn't develop for for some time after. So I I identified with this young girl that I immediately imagined. She, you know, she flew up almost fully grown in my head. I could see her. I could hear her. I knew what she looked like. I knew what her name was. And I think I really identified with her because I thought, well, that could have been me. You know, that could have been me, uh, um, a bright kind of girl um, in, in a world in which there really was no space for girls to do anything other than that kind of maintenance work of the house and feeding people and cleaning up after their mess and mm. doing the hard yakka and really not ever having a chance to do the sort of things that, for instance, Jesus was able to do and, and, and the kind of adventures he was able to have and, and things he was able to make of his life. But I think that's how I got into the story was thinking "Mm, that could have been me.
0: And what kind of research? Obviously, you had some knowledge of the story, but to write historical fiction and to write something authentic in that era, you you have to get a lot of things right. What kind of research did you have to do for this book?
1: Well, in fact, I had no knowledge. So in some ways, I think that made me the perfect person to do this because not, I had not read um, the, the First Testament or the Torah. Right. I'd not read the Gospels.
2: Right. Um,
1: I really had no religious education whatsoever. Mm. Um, and my parents really didn't know anything about Christianity either. So when I asked questions growing up, I had a girlfriend who was a Catholic, um, and so I did go to church with her every once in a while. Mm. But we never talked about religion. Mm. Um, and so I really knew nothing. Um, So I started by reading the Gospels um, and reading, in fact, the whole Bible. Mm. Um, But as you say, I then had to try to, you know, the Bible is not a historical document. It is a multi-authored religious text. And so I was trying to situate people in a real historical world. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to know things that clearly weren't going to be covered. You know, what did women do every day? What did they eat? Mm-hmm. How did they prepare the bread? You know, what kinds of, um? how did they pick the olives? What did the olives look like on the trees? What time was picking season? Mm-hmm. You know, those very, very fundamental things you need to know to build a world. Mm-hmm. So I, I could find some of that stuff out by just looking at modern day Israel. And I had been to Israel several times. And I had some photos left and you could find some on the website. Mm. But I also, you know, went into the library and did as much research as I could into finding out what little was available because people didn't write histories the way they do now Mm. um, about, you know, the crockery and just those things that you take so for granted that if you were to write a modern day story, you would just know if somebody picked up something to write something, you'd know what they picked up to write with. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this world, you'd think, oh, God, did people even write? You know, were they literate? Oh, if they were literate, you know, what did they use? How did they get the ink? You know, what kind of thing did they use for the quill? Was it a quill? Like everything is a question. (laughs) So there was a fair bit of research to get the answers I needed to make it real. Although, of course, at times I had to make it up.
0: Mm, And so how long did this take? How long did you spend on this project?
1: Uh, probably all up. I spent around seven years. Whoa! Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a long time. I mean, you know, you imagine me kind of toiling away day after day just doing that, and of course, that wasn't how it was. Mm. Um, I, I would, I had a job, mm. so I would, you know, try to fit it, and I had very young kids as well, so I would try to go away, you know, for retreats for a couple of weeks, which my husband was very wonderful in supporting me to do, mm. and I would try to. Um, I took some leaves from work and tried to kind of, you know, write lots in say three months mm. and then I would leave it for quite a long time and I'd return to it and decide I really didn't like what I'd written pretty much at all. Not not the plot so much, but I just didn't like the way I was executing the story. Mm. So I'd start all over again Um And then I worked out I really didn't actually know how to write a novel. So I had to kind of take a leave of absence from that process and go off and actually learn how to write a novel. So that took a fair bit of time. (laughs) And then I had to come back to the novel and then try and write it properly. So it it was very time-consuming, but I think that's because wrapped up in there was a lot of work, child raising, and learning how to write a novel.
0: But seven years is a long time to sustain the same interest and passion. How did you, you know, was it easy or hard to to maintain that connection with the project?
1: Mm. I have a lot of experience with long projects, so I am pretty good at that. Like I've written a PhD, I've written a master's thesis, so Mm. I do have that kind of long span of concentration But the other thing that was keeping me going was just this really healthy Jewish guilt because what would happen is I would write a draft, put it away, go back to my life, come back to the draft, think, oh, this is just rubbish um, and think, no, that's it. I can't do it. I'm I'm giving up and I'm giving the whole thing away. Mm. And I would decide that. But then I would feel so extraordinarily guilty because the whole thematic of this book is about these women having been forgotten. You know, everybody went, no, we don't care, you're not important enough, we couldn't be bothered, we're, you know, you've been forgotten, so you you may have existed, we don't care, you're gone. Mm. And I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be solving that problem for them, I'm Mm -hmm. supposed to be bringing them back to life, and there I am going, oh, sorry, too hard, can't be bothered, I'm off. (laughs) So I was feeling terrible, like I was abandoning them, and I, they had names, to me they were completely living creatures, like Mm. they were alive and there was just this gap between the world I had created in which I could see them roaming Mm. and my capacity to bring that to other people. Mm. So I just kept feeling like it just wasn't good enough to say, I can't do it. Mm. I felt like I had to just keep trying until I mastered it.
0: But when you live with something for seven years and then it's finished, how did you feel? (laughs) Are you looking for things (laughs) to do now? Are you walking around the house going, oh? (laughs) What am I going to do do? now?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because luckily, you know, Books never really finish. <laughs> I mean, they don't finish until the moment you actually see them on the shelf in a shop. Yes. Um, they they just slowly trickle away, mm. you know. So, for instance, when I, I was just beside myself with Delight when text said that they would publish the book mm. and my children who had been living under the shadow of this book for, for as long as they could remember were also quite joyous. <laughs> they were like, it's done, it's finished, it's totally over. But I'd written a couple of books before and so mm-hmm. I just had to go, wait a minute, mm-hmm. like this is kind of the beginning of the end but now we're going to go through the editing process. So yes. it's just going to keep coming yes. back and then there's going to be a proofreading process so it's going to keep coming back and then I'm going to need to do stuff around, you know, the publicity where you get people to say puffy For things sure. about it and all you know, all that stuff. There's a lot of business. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: the last year has been full of that which is relatively pleasant and not that arduous.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in that time I've been trying to do a bit of work because it's been, you know, obviously it's quite stressful financially to work for less than a cent an hour. (laughs) (laughs) And one really does have to eventually say enough is enough. Um, But I'm, you know, also kind of hatching another idea, a couple of other ideas actually of things I'd like to do and hopefully, you know, that will be possible in the not too near future.
0: So before we go on to those other ideas, just a lot of people would be interested to know about um, the publishing process and how you got the attention of the publisher. What happened? How did you get published?
1: Okay, well, um, this experience is uh, my experience because I'm not a completely unknown person. Mm. So it was a somewhat different experience to the one I had when I got my first book published, which was called The Abortion Myth. Mm. This time I... Um, knew a number of people already because of having published previous books and just because I'm an older person now and so Melbourne's a small place, you Mm. tend to know people. Um, So it wasn't really very hard for... The book to get out of the, you know, it didn't have to go in the slush pile. Mm. Essentially, you know, so so you either have to go through the slush pile or you don't have to go through the slush pile. And getting out of the slush pile, as we all know, is, is somewhat of a challenge. So mm. I didn't really have to negotiate that challenge this time round. Mm. Um, it, it was it was willing. People were willing to read it. So the question really was, when they read it, whether or not they were going to get it and think this was um, terrific. And I always wanted text to be. The publisher, right. because they have a fantastic reputation, and I must say, every last asterisk of it is deserved. They are a wonderful publisher. They are wonderful editors. They are wonderful, you know, producers of books. They have wonderful marketing. They're just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Mm-hmm. So you know, they came with this uh, reputation, and so you know, I was lucky enough that that they knew who I was and were certainly willing to read the manuscript. So in the end, it came down to exactly what as an author you want it to come down to, which is whether or not I'd written it such that. It, you know, was as compelling as they... Thought it was going to be and delivered on what they thought I could deliver on, mm. and and they felt that way. So I was very lucky.
0: So in terms of getting yourself known, obviously your work apart from as an academic, your 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 columns, your your articles in the Sun Herald, the Age, and so on, that's useful um, to to gain a profile for for those people who are listening who want to try and not be the unknown person.
1: Is yeah, look, I, I think, I do think, you know, for years and years and years, I did a lot of radio, TV, um, you know, any kind of publicity sort of thing mm. I did. I you say I wrote columns in the paper, which I really enjoyed, mm. but if there were opportunities where I would get asked to do something and, you know, it was it a was fair number of, it was a fair lot of work and there wasn't going to be any pay for it. Uh, everyone was telling me, oh, you should do it. It's really good for your profile. Mm. And I think the profile, God, it's like this great big sucking vacuum. You know, no matter how much you throw into it, more wants to, you know, be taken. And when do you finish? Like, when do you finish building your profile? <laughs> so I, I always was kind of, you know, a little bit suspicious of it. But most people are smarter than I am. So I thought, right, I'll just listen to them. They keep saying, it's good. Build your profile. It's good, good, good. And I think this is where having a profile did actually cash out for me. I think mm. this is where... um I can concretely see that this was helpful because I, I did get a number of people who were more than happy to read the manuscript, and that doesn't mean everybody loved it, mm. Um but it, but I didn't have trouble having it, you know, get an audience. And I think for some writers, that is a huge problem. Mm. So I do actually think if, if you can develop um, a reputation, and that's, a, of course, these days, not just in the mainstream media, which is really predominantly where I was doing it because that's, you know, where the thing was at the time. Mm. But now online, and I'm a, I'm a prolific Twitterer, and I have a number of Twitter followers and also Facebook followers, mm. And that's, of course, where it's going. Mm. So I think if you can develop a profile even solely online, that, again, is helpful because at the end of the day, um, publishers have to sell books. Mm. And so they're looking not just at the book itself, mm. uh, even though that's the primary thing. And they're also looking at whether or not you are somebody who's going to be capable of marketing that book.
0: Mm. What would you say to those writers out there who really shun the online world and social media and believe that their writing should speak for themselves and that, you know, it's the publisher's job to market it? What would you say to that? Because I hear those comments.
1: Oh, look, I think people are entitled to have whatever views they want and to conduct themselves in whatever way they want. It's Mm. their life. It's their career. Mm. But they... You want to do that, um, you want to know that people are doing that in light of what the potential consequences are of a decision like that. Mm. So my perception is is the one I've just shared with you mm. that um, probably these days it's not good enough. I mean, you may be the most talented writer in the world, and maybe they'll put up with You being reclusive and difficult, but in general, there's a fair number of talented people out there. A lot of people want to write and have their books published, Mm. so I think you are part of the package that a publisher is looking at. Mm. And it seems to me silly. You know, it's almost like kind of going into a test and going, "Oh, you know, I don't really want to do section A of this test. I'm just going to do so well on section B. (laughs) Section A won't matter." Mm. I mean, why wouldn't you have a go? doing everything
2: Mm.
1: because that's in the end you know for some people they're just writing because they want to write Mm. and and maybe publishing is gravy Mm. but for those who are really clear they want to be published and I was very clear about that Mm. I was very clear that for me the end of this process was to get these women's stories out Mm. I wanted other people to read them Mm. so I feel like you do everything you kind of go right that's my objective what are the steps I need to take to get as close as I can to that objective Mm. and certainly making yourself um a marketable and interesting and engaging and known quantity is is a plus for you when a publisher is evaluating, taking you on.
0: Mm. Now, most of your work previously has been nonfiction, and this is fiction. So what did you have to do to get into a different headspace or or mindset to to write fiction? Because it's very, very different to, you know, sticking to the facts and making sure you're telling an accurate story and all of that. Um, What did you have to do to... Sweet hats.
1: Well, you know, I wish somebody like you had been around at the time, because <laughs> <laughs> we'd made it completely clear that, you know, this was a different um, uh, kind of event. Mm. Um, when I first thought to do it, you know, and, and quickly came to the view that I couldn't write another non-fiction book, it would have to be fiction, mm. I didn't have one person say to me, oh Leslie, you know, what the hell would you know about fiction? <laughs> um, Instead, they said, oh, you're a great writer, you know, you'll be fine. And, you know, I I have this, my public persona that you know, I'm very confident in the the sense that, you know, you don't, that's my thing. Like, I'm not really into putting my insecurities on display. Mm -hmm. So people tend to think of me as being very confident. Mm -hmm. And so I must have seemed really confident. And they thought, oh, well, you know, she knows what she's doing. Off she goes. Um, And so it did actually take me a while to realize exactly what you just said, as though every idiot knows it and every (laughs) idiot should know it, (laughs) which is that it's a completely different skill set Mm. um, and that however um, competent and capable and experienced a writer I might have been in one uh, domain, the nonfiction domain, I had plenty to learn um, in the fiction one and I needed to pick up those skills. So mm. once that kind of penny dropped and it took a couple of drafts, mm. it took a couple of writing drafts and then getting back to them and going, oh my God, they're terrible because I'm a reader. So I can, could easily see mm. what was wrong with my stuff. I just didn't know how to fix it. Mm. I didn't have the editorial language to fix it. Um, finally, a friend of mine said, just because you have a PhD doesn't mean you shouldn't you know, consider going back to school. Mm. And I was like, oh, God, I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I think of that? Like you think it would be the first thing I'd think of because I'm an academic and an educator. But of course, I sort of sell myself not as a student.
2: Mm. So it
1: didn't occur to me. So thankfully, people say they're bleedingly obvious. I don't know what I'd do in my life if they didn't. <laughs> um, and so I went off and, and took um, this wonderful course at RMIT, which I'm just a huge fan of. And I was I was really ready you know, for the information that was delivered. I'd already run into a lot of problems. I knew exactly what I didn't know. So as the information was pouring out of the teacher's mouth, it was pouring into my brain and really making connections absolutely everywhere. You know, oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. Oh, right. That's what, you know, like I just got it straight away. Mm. So once that process was completed... I went back and did the third blind rewrite. Oh my god! Um, and that was the one that, that worked.
0: And so, when you were in that writing routine, then did you have a writing routine? Did you have any, or, or is do you just write when you can because you do so many other things? Or do you actually, you know, sit down and have your co- get caffeinated in the morning? <laughs> what, what is describe your day, your writing day?
1: Well, I, when you're I writing. prefer. I strongly, strongly. Prefer prefer to clear at least two to three days to do any kind of big project like this. Mm. I mean, what I really prefer is for everything else to go away, (laughs) including (laughs) my family, all dinner requirements, and just have someone bring me coffee Mm. while for the next kind of two and a half days or until I can't stay up any longer – I get through the bit that I'm working on. That's actually really what I prefer, but that doesn't, you know, quite pan out. But insofar as I can get that, so for a while I had this wonderful space at Glenfern, which is a writer's kind of uh, trust, uh, it was a national trust house where they're putting writers. Um, and that was wonderful because it was like a door that I could close. Mm. Um, at the moment I have to work at home and I have two teenage sons who mm. are in and out with their friends and video games and it's mm. very difficult so, in fact, my my capacity to work at the moment is in, is uh, you know under siege a little bit because I haven't really found a very quiet place and I've been raging about the lack of quiet in the public libraries as a consequence mm. of it. But, yeah, for me, if I can, I try to, um, and I'm not really at that stage at the moment because we're doing publicity for the book and, and so I'm focused on other things. But when I'm ready to start this project, I will look in my diary and try to block out days mm. and go, right, you know, for this week, I'm writing and I'm not going to put anything else in there because I just I need to get into the space. And it's, as you say, it's kind of a different mental space mm. to write fiction.
0: So tell us about the next project or projects. Can you tell us a little bit about what you want to be working on next?
1: Well, you know, I, I can tell you, um, you know, two thought bubbles um, <laughs> and they really are just thought bubbles. Mm. Um, my initial impulse, because that's just so me, Is to think right, done history. Now I want to do something completely different. I want to do a contemporary novel. I want to do one based in you know today in St Kilda, which is where I live. And because of all the struggles that I had with the historical, you know, novel with Rachel about, you know, nothing was easy. You couldn't ever just write a sentence Mm. because inevitably you'd have some anachronism in it or some some, you know, thing that didn't exist back then or some word that didn't sound right. Mm. Um, so I was I was really kind of playing around with the idea of doing something quite contemporary just so I could talk and write <laughs> <laughs> without having to kind of deconstruct every word and think, did yeah. they really say that? Would they have really done that? Um, but now I'm starting to shift again because I, I really am fascinated by history and just for me, history so comes alive in an historical novel. I love reading them. So I just heard on the radio the other day this fascinating uh, history that has just been written about a, slave, a case um, that was very influential in terms of turning the tide on slavery. Mm. Um, and basically, you know, I imagined all of a sudden I got that kind of image in my head where I thought, oh, God, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of follow the journey of somebody who was learning about this court case and then thinking about activism and how you would persuade other people to do
2: mm. something
1: and how you would turn this into a movement. Because mm. activism is something I do, so I'm kind of interested in whether or not you could paint kind of a modern tableau over the history of, of how I understand social change works and mm. political change works. So I'm I'm floating around with those two ideas at the moment. And like I said, I've got no space and no money. So nothing's about to happen in any, in any immediate sense and hopefully by the time I do have some space and some money I will have decided which of those I'm going to pursue to start with.
0: Mm. Now this year you were named Australian Humanist of the Year by the International Humanist and Ethical Union. Tell us a bit about that award and, and, and um, what it means to you. Uh,
1: look, that award was just, yeah, it was really, I was very humbled by it and mm. it it meant a lot to me mm. to be recognized in that way. Um, I think, you know, I do a number of different kinds of advocacy but other than the advocacy where I'm like literally on the ground, you know, with a microphone in my hand, which is isn't a minority, mm. most of the stuff I do is, you know, I'm sitting in my own room and I'm writing something and then it kind of goes off into the electronic ether and gets published. But you don't have a sense of... People reading it, you don't know how many people are reading it. You don't know how many people think whatever they think about it. You have no sense of influence. Mm. or um, So this is that kind of thing where all of a sudden you think, wow, you know, somebody was paying attention to me like mm. for years. And this, mm. this this award kind of dates back to kind of, you know, they're thanking me for 10 years of of mostly my kind of written advocacy around issues that, that are of concern to humanists. Mm. And it's just so extraordinary to think, wow, someone's been watching me for 10 years and I've been meaning something to them that mm. whole time, I can't tell you the sort of boost that it gives you. Mm. It gives you the boost that will take you, you know, through another 10 years of, of doing that in, in a silent room without knowing wow. what's really happening. Fantastic. Um,
0: what, and finally, what's your advice to budding authors, people who have not yet had their first book published, very interested in writing, and that they want to do what you've done? You know, what What are the key things they should be doing or considering?
1: Well, um, there's there's a couple of things. I mean, I actually did start out when I was young, you know, 17, 18, 19, wanting to be a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And I did actually take a course um, up at Cornell University. And it was a beautiful course and the teacher was really quite lovely. And at the end of the course, he handed back my final assignment and he I can't remember his precise words, but the upshot of what he said to me was: there's no problem with the way you write, but essentially you're too young to really have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> you really, you need to go out, you need to put your pen down, go out, live a life, gain some perspective, and then come back to writing. And I, you know, that's that's a bit hard to take when you're 19 and you know everything. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> But I did take it on board um, and I did stop writing um, fiction for a very long time. Um, and, you know, I guess I might never have gone back if it hadn't been for this project, but who knows, maybe mm. the reverse is in factory, maybe this project family, because I was ready to go back to fiction writing. Mm. But I do think there is something in that, you know, you do need a fair bit of maturity and perspective and life experience to mm. write good fiction. So going out and living a life is a, is pretty good advice. It's a, It's the rare person who can write something astounding and interesting when they're, you know, very young. Mm. Um, but if you're an older person, then f- then I would really strongly suggest, unless you already have those skills, that you find um, a fantastic program like the one at RMIT if you're in Melbourne, and 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 acquire those skills. Because once you've got that kind of toolbox, um, all you need then is for that you know idea to strike you. That idea that is going to sustain you over years and years and years. That mm. fascination, that question, um, that sense of obligation, whatever it is. And so you have your project and then you have your skills then you're old enough to have something to say and Bob's your uncle. Mm -mm.
0: Wonderful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Leslie. Pleasure. ValerieKoo.com. That's valerie Koo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.